Hey everybody, we're here with my good friends David Polinchuk and Jeff Barrett. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Experience Focused Podcast. What's yeah, up? I'm hey, uh, looking forward to a good experience. through my second Costco green tea, so I'm super amped. <laughs> Jeff's ready to party. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're super excited today, everybody, because we've got, got David here. He's got some great experience, former AT&T former PwC, he's been focused on on experiences and creating good experiences for the past what, David, 10, 15 years of your of your career? Actually goes back about twenty five. Yeah, but this is this isn't okay, a so I was off by so more than double. Which is what do you know? What do you that, no, that's yeah. true. <laughs> it's a creative podcast. Hallelujah. So to talk us through, David, as we're kind of just introducing you. Walk us through your career and how what you're doing now with the Experiential Advertising Group uh, that you founded and you're what we call the Chief Experience Officer. Uh, talk us through what your career's been like and how experience and why it's been such a focus. Well, so um, I graduated college with a degree in theater, um, so that you know left no work opportunities available. Um, and I wanted to do children's theater, and I thought the best place to do children's theater would be Disney. So I, I went down to Florida, and my family had moved there. So my first job out of college was actually to be in merchandising at Disney and then a parade performer. Um, and, and I have to tell you, you know, especially being on the theme park side as a theme park employee, that's where I really got the whole experience thing. Especially when I was back there back in the 80s, uh, I was there when the Magic Kingdom was the only park and I was there for the opening of Epcot Center. And just to see the amount of effort, at least back then, that Disney put into making sure that every guest had the most incredible experience possible. You know, um, and, and, and that really kind of set where I thought experiences should be. Uh, so I did that for a number of years. I went back to my performing and I actually spent a couple years doing children's theater work. But about um, 90-ish, 1990, I was talking to a friend of mine who was in Orlando and at a theme, uh, a show called IAPA, which is the big theme park show. Uh, and we were just kind of talking about life and stuff. And he said, I just saw this really cool thing called virtual reality. Uh, you're a marketing guy. I bet you we could make a marketing thing out of it. And I said, totally in. Uh, no idea what I was talking about the first meeting I had. I'd never actually seen virtual reality at that point. Uh, did my first event with VR at the Consumer Electronics Show in 91 uh, with my friend Dave Peters and some other folks and just saw the incredible power of that technology even back then, even in the 90s when the computers were, you know, the size of a Volkswagen and uh you know, the, the graphics looked like I had hand-drawn them and everything about it was big and clunky and slow and and awesome. And people just got really excited about it. And we started looking at how you could create truly immersive brand experiences using virtual reality. And uh, throughout the 90s, I did that. I traveled around the world. I uh, My company was the tour management company for the Cuddy Sark Virtual Voyage, which as far as I know is still the largest VR promotional experience ever. Uh, we were on the road for 18 months. Uh, we did tens of thousands of people through VR systems. And that's really, you know, again, it just reinforced that we need to create better experiences. 
um, in all around. At the same, towards the end of the '90s, VR, of course, didn't really on a consumer side didn't really go anywhere. You know, people talk today there's there's not enough distribution of, of VR systems, and back in the '90s we were probably talking less than a thousand worldwide. So, you know, there was no distribution. Um, but because of the virtual reality work, I was getting brought into themed restaurant projects and casinos and all kinds of people who wanted to play with VR. And that sort of expanded my horizon to the physical environments as well. And how does the physical space change because of the technologies we have? Um, and so I started my own lab in early 2000s, really looking at interactive technologies, um, uh, working with universities like Carnegie Mellon to see what's out there and what's going to be interesting. Uh, the challenge back then, as we still have today, is, you know, in 2000, if you start to explain to somebody augmented reality, they just looked at you like you had just, you know, dropped acid. Uh, they had no idea what you were talking about. And that's the, the need for the physical environment was so that we could bring a lot of technologies in and really let people play on it and experience it firsthand and really dive in and understand how it can be used. And that led to uh, a program like uh, MSNBC Newsbreaker Live, where we took the old Brick Breaker game. We turned it into a audience game where the entire audience of a movie theater played it by leaning left or right in their seats. Uh, and, and again, the, you know, we sat there the first time we did it. We launched the game early just to test it out because we had the audience sitting there and it was going to be an hour before the movie actually started. And we watched an audience demand to play the game over and over and over again. And we realized people love these experiences. Um, and that's led to, you know, I built a lab for AT&T and really helped them further their storytelling. And what I see today is so many brands talk about experiences and how important experiences are, but don't actually really deliver on it. And I think there's a real opportunity for brands that know how to do it well to keep no, their relevance point, and their like business if, going. If experience was leaderboards, then Foursquare would still be a thing. But um, <laughs> you mean, uh, right. there's a bunch of questions I want to ask you. But first, when you were talking about virtual reality in the early 90s, I remember, um, and this is an interesting aside about experience, I remember being in a Blockbuster video, RIP Blockbuster video, uh, with my dad and wanting to test out the Virtual Boy from Nintendo, which was a terrible right. experience because everything was red. It didn't matter what you were playing. Everything was in this red, red space. Right. <laughs> and it just kind of makes me think about, you know, there are no overnight things, right? If virtual reality has been around for this long. Uh, it's just about finding the right thing to create adoption. So when it comes to AR and... You know, some people will point to Pokemon Go, but I think Pokemon Go will eventually look like what Virtual Boy looked like to VR. What is the yeah. <laughs> what is the kind of thing that breaks open AR look like to you? Uh, Tinder. Uh, as as <laughs> as soon as you can swipe left and right in real life <laughs> using it, <laughs> um, I I, I kind of joke about that, but you know there. There will be some some activity that will make people say, I can use this every day, right? Um, I think I was a Google Glass Explorer and I wear, wore Google Glass 
probably every day for about two and a half years. But did you take a picture wearing it in the shower? I did not because that's stupid because it wasn't waterproof. Uh, <laughs> and, and I paid $1,500 for it, and there was no way I was going to step into a shower with it. You weren't going to get your backup set ready. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they, they were, Google was not going to send me another pair, um, as other people might have gotten. Um, and, and I had a really interesting experience with, with Google Glass where there was a lot of press at the time that it was, you know, privacy invasion and all these kind of issues. I had more people in places that I went to buy me drinks so that they could play with Google Glass and try them on and experience it than I had people who complained about I was invading their privacy. So you met a lot of people who were glass curious. Uh, very glass curious. And and it was interesting. The one bar that I went to in New York where the bartender came over and said, you got to take them off. And I said, sure, sure. I'm not going to argue. But how come? And he said, well, we're worried that you could be taking pictures of everybody and they wouldn't know it. And it makes people uncomfortable. And I said, OK, no, totally good. How about if I take my phone out and start taking pictures of everybody that's here right now? And he went, oh, that'd be awesome. Just make sure you tag it to our Facebook page. And I was like... I don't really understand that. Like, <laughs> if you said don't take pictures, I'm totally down with that. But don't take pictures with that camera instead of this. Like, so I think what what will have to happen is, um, one, they they did look goofy. Google Glass. I mean, I didn't mind yeah. them, but that's because I'm a kind of goofy guy. But for <laughs> for a lot of people, they couldn't wear them just because they looked kind of ridiculous. Um, somebody will need to do something with the sort of fashionist, you know, fashion side of it to make it look like something that we, we don't mind. But it, it has to have real everyday utility for a lot of people. I loved sending text messages through Google Glass. It was so easy. You just hit the side and say, okay, Glass, send a message to you. And I could talk my message to my wife or my daughter. I sent most of my text to my family through Google Glass for that time period. That's why, like, people in the early 2000s, when they had those Nextel phones and they'd be in the oh. supermarket and they'd be like, boop, boop, uh, which, wh how do I feel an avocado? Right. Boop, boop. I love those yeah. things. In fact, uh, we, I was one of those guys. Um, we got it Same. when uh, when we were expecting uh, a child at the time. And I convinced my wife, who's who's not really big on technology and is kind of one of those people that says, well, but you know, your Trio phone is still working. Why do you need a new phone? Um, so I convinced her that this would be really easy because she could just press the button and say labor. And I would know. Um, and we had to stop it when I was in a meeting one day and we hadn't set up the protocols for how to, how we used it. And she just, you know, get that, that hey, Dave, so I'm thinking for dinner tonight and I'm in a meeting and there's no way to turn that thing off. You know, I'm trying to pull the battery out, and she's just going on and on and on. Um, so, so there wasn't enough for the average human being at $1,500. There just wasn't enough utility in it to make it work. And spectacles are not selling, and that could probably be due to the fact that they look like sunglasses. And if you wear them anywhere where you probably don't need sunglasses, they, they're obtrusive, they're, they're right? really hard. And, and, and here's what's interesting, and this probably says a lot more about me than it does about spectacles or Google Glass. Um, I have spectacles. I, I think I look so stupid wearing them that I can't put them on, but I didn't think I look stupid wearing Google Glass. 
Um, but but again, it's a it's a value thing. So I'm I'm wearing my spectacles. First of all, it's 10 second videos, and 10 seconds yeah. is either way way too short or enormously too long. Right? It's a, we tried a 10 second podcast. It didn't <laughs> yeah, work out it's well. not. Hello, thank you. Goodbye. I mean, it's not a, it's not enough. And and again, just to take that l- little video clip wasn't enough of a value proposition. Um, it needs to be more multifunctional. Now, I think in some environments, like when I when I travel, I think things like AR take on a totally different meaning. So I was in Warsaw years ago. We spent about two and a half hours, as apparently every American tourist does, looking for the remaining brick wall of the Jew- of the Warsaw ghetto. Uh, turns out, at least we were told, and for all I know, there's people in Warsaw who still laugh about the time they duped the Americans. Uh, But they told us it was in the courtyard of an apartment building. We sort of had to wait to get buzzed in and kind of see it. And by the time we got there, it's a brick wall. There's nothing there at all. And I just think if I had, you know, forced my daughter, who was maybe eight or nine at the time, uh, she was not with me on the trip. But if I if she was and I had forced her to wander for two and a half hours to look for a brick wall and what we found was a brick wall, she would have been like, dude, you could have pointed to any wall in the city and just told me that was it. But suddenly with AR, we could look at that wall and that wall could come to life. And yeah. it could tell, you know, the I'm, I'm putting this in air quotes, the official story, this wall, the Jewish ghetto and what does it mean for Warsaw and all that. But also there's great opportunities for people to tag that wall with their own family story. And now that wall really becomes a, a living experience, not just a brick wall. And that's where AR seems to be the bigger play than VR going forward because we've seen what happens here with glass and spectacles and what's, you know, happened with 3D televisions where when you're required to wear something, it disorients and kind of disrupts your everyday feel. I think you and I agree. I'd rather be tapping, tapping my head and saying things than probably leaning over because I think 20 years from now, we're going to evolve to having all having contacts. (laughs) But yeah. And my grandchildren and our, you know, will say things like you had to take your phone out of your pocket. Oh, it's going to look it's going to look now, ridiculous. Just like when, when I watch movies from the 1970s with my daughter today and the hero is running around looking for a payphone and she can't understand that at all, um, you know, our, my grandchildren will be like, wow, you guys lived that. That must have been really hard to live like that. Um, well, people wonder, what, how did you not fall into more fountains? Right. <laughs> That's right. How yeah. did you not? Did and, you... And, and again, I think what really becomes really critical about this is is context and for a company like you guys this is going to be huge because somebody needs to drive this the entire ux of an ar world Mm. is a completely different play right i don't i'm in the advertising space i do this every day i play with emerging technologies every day and the last thing i want is to walk down fifth avenue and have ads pop in front of my face as i walk past stores Oh, you don't like Times Square? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't mind Times Square in a very <laughs> single, you know, space. I, I, it doesn't bother me as much. But in other places, I just it makes me crazy. And yeah. um, so, 
the the UX that we need to think about when information is infinitely available on the world becomes really interesting, right? I, I especially today, right? I don't think we're going to come up with. Um, I don't think anybody's going to be uh, happy about face recognition in AR, right? Where I could just walk down the street and hold up my phone and see who people are, or my glass, or whatever it is. Well, you gave a, you 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 made a perfect segue into where I was going to go. It's like you're doing my job for me. That's that's exactly where I wanted to go because I wanted to talk about in a little different text context because I, I want you to keep going on where you are, but also thinking about what are the advertising plays you can get from getting facial recognition data from people just using their iPhone. Um, I'll, I'll, let me come back to that for a second. Um, what I was going yep, we'll what I was going to say though is what I think people would like and be okay with, uh, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this. You do a lot of shows. You, you go to a lot of events mm -hmm. and there are people that you see twice a year at an event and they're one of 1,500 people you met that week. So you know you know them, but you don't really know who they are. And if you see them at the same trade show the following year, you at least have the context of, oh yeah, we met last year. But if you see them somewhere else, you have no clue who they are, right? Because they're out of context. Um, mm -hmm. If you tied in my uh, people who have connected with me on LinkedIn or people who have, I'm again using air quotes, somebody who has opted in in some way so that my heads up display right. simply says, hey, that's Jeff or Mark and you met them here and this is what they do. Like just little private information for me. Um, so I, I think there will be ways that, that facial recognition will get in that people will start to go, I, I think that's cool or I think that's interesting. I that we had a company at the the TechX called Coder that comes from South Korea, and they do an embedded pattern process into materials, whether it be prints or actual materials themselves, things like phones and purses and whatever, um, so that you can look at it. And it's not to, it, it's using AR, but it's not using image recognition, right? Um, mm -hmm. In the future, and not too distant future, when I can walk down the street and look at a briefcase that somebody's carrying and go, dude, wow, that's a great looking briefcase, be able to use my phone to grab what that briefcase is, buy it, and then because of facial recognition maybe, that person gets a commission because he was basically the store. Then people right. might be less afraid of things. Um, the the one thing that we have found consistency consistently as it relates to privacy, not security, that's a totally different discussion, but when there's a value exchange for the consumer, then they're pretty open with their privacy. Oh, yeah. I mean, aren't there those people in Wisconsin that were like, yeah, put a microchip exactly. in you. Exactly. We, I was involved many, many, many years ago in a privacy focus group. And, and one of the questions was, you know, would you be okay if your cell phone provider shared your location data with third parties? And this one gentleman just was, that's absolutely not. That's outrageous. I can't believe you'd even suggest that. The very next question was, would you be okay if they did it when you walked past your favorite bar, you got a free beer? And he was like, wait, somebody's doing that? Can I sign up right now? You know, the privacy threshold was a free beer. 
Yeah, that's the in- the interesting thing when we think about this stuff. So I start my head starts going back into like late two thousands, and right before um, right before Foursquare, and the thought that we needed to use these tiny little incentives to incentivize retail, right? But then we started moving away from that. We started going into well, now we just do subscription services and we try and take people online. I, I'm curious how you view. The space and whether or not you should be trying harder to get more retail traffic or if you should be just embracing the complete disruption. Well, so that's retail is a big area, of course, because it's the big physical world that we live in. Um, And it is interesting that about probably 85 percent plus of shopping is still done in store. Right. So we still love to go to stores. What I think is that. um, So here's the thing. A lot of retail today, with the exception of something like an Ikea, because they do it very differently, most retail is about inventory management, right? How many pairs of that pants do I have and how many sizes and how many colors on and on and on. And that's the the one thing, but that's the one thing that people don't understand so much when they see these retail stores go away. They think, oh, well, they have large blueprints and all these employees, but it's really the unsold merchandise, right, that kind of – throws them under? That's right. That's exactly right. So the future will be that you don't need that because I'm okay for the most part that you're going to ship it to me tomorrow. Yeah. So right? you, you use these retail stores as showrooms, basically. As, as more experiential, yep. whatever that means for the for the brand and for their audience, right? Because it's very different um, based, based on who the brand is and who the audience is. But if you think about why we go to physical places, whatever that is, right? There's some practicality. I have to go to work and things like that. But a lot of it is the social connections that we make, right? Sure. For as long as I've been doing this, 20, since the 91, I've been hearing people say that because of technology and Skype, I mean, not that Skype was there around then, but all that kind of technology, we're never going to have to leave our house. We're just, anytime you want to talk to somebody, it's going to be easy to do. And the people who were telling me this were always people that this was the sixth cocktail party I had seen them at this week. (laughs) Right. You know, like we have to go out. We have to be social. So if you think about an Apple store, which I, I know everybody uses as a great example, and it's, it gets a little cliche sometimes. When the Apple store opened in Soho, it was written up in like Time Out New York, one of those publications, as being yeah. one of the best places to meet single people in Soho. And You guys can fall in love over your mutual love exactly of right. all things Apple. You, you, yeah. you had a reason to, to talk to, oh, you know, I love that case. I have that case too. It's an awesome case or whatever it is. <laughs> You know, you had and that 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 whole environment, if you think about what an Apple store looks like, there's not a lot of physical product that you see in that store. You made a made an interesting point when you talked a little bit about you think AR could uh, do something for Tinder. What if it what if it was as simple as you're in the bar, you do not have the courage to go talk to somebody and somehow you use AR to message the person that you can actually see with your very own eyes. Yeah. I mean, I do because I have a 16 year old daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. So first of all, I joke that, you know, by the time she's allowed to date, which will be 30, 40 years from now, the tech is going to be really advanced. Um, But she will (laughs) walk into a place, whatever it is, 
uh, she'll do a facial recognition scan. It'll match it against her database, and it'll say, here's three people that look like they're good people for you to talk to. Yeah. Uh, now, it could be a dating thing, right? But it could also be, I'm looking for a new job. Who is the best prospect for me to talk to in this you know, business cocktail party that I'm at because I'm looking for a job? And that might be where online reputation matters, because if you look at current news right now, yeah. um, you know, I mean, look, if, if your reputation precedes you in all spaces because of facial recognition, um, you could look at that as a as a means of, you know, weeding out the, the bad people or you could look at it as, you know, a negative, depending on what spectrum you fall on. But it's it's interesting that it doesn't seem crazy that that will be the norm in 10 years. I, I don't, I mean, I totally, I, I joke, I, and, you know, I shouldn't give this away because this is my pay for my daughter's college and my retirement fund is I'm going to make. Then pump the brakes, David, I, pump the brakes. If you're going to give away <laughs> money, pump the brakes. I, but, I'm here, I'm here to stop you. <laughs> but I have an app for those days. I'm ready, I'm ready for the app for those days because A, it will happen. Like, like unless electricity disappears tomorrow uh these things will come and they will happen and and you're you, well people never want to be less informed that's correct. they might want to be in their own echo chamber where they constantly watch or you know digest one thing right. they never want to be less informed um there and, and and that's a great so there's an old book called the great good places by ray oldenburg uh and he talks a lot about society and physical the physical world uh, and he's the reference point I know for a concept called the third place. I don't know if it came before yeah. him, right? And and the point he makes is that there's always been three three main places, at least when he wrote the book. There was the workplace, the home place, and then there was some third place that we used to go to. And at times it's been the the you know the fair on Saturday where everybody went and bought their their food and their groceries and stuff. Uh, it's been religious institutions. It's literally been the fire pit. And what's interesting today is, what's interesting about it is they thought that the internet was going to be the third place, a new third place. Mm -hmm. The challenge that we've seen is the echo chamber, where the idea of the third place is that everybody who lives in that town goes to the same grocery store. And therefore, you're mixing everybody up. Because of the way the internet has gone or the way we've used the internet, we're only going to our own grocery stores, metaphorically, right? So we're surrounding right. ourselves, which one of the downsides of this technology where I can scan a room and decide who I should talk to is that the algorithm is never going to solve for serendipity, it's never going to solve True. for that person that you're walking away from the bar and you turn around and you bump into them and you end up having a conversation and they end up being somebody that's of real interest to, to you, again, whether it's you know dating or business or whatever it is. Whatever the case is, um, yeah. So until the algorithms, you know, I laugh with Sydney all the time because she's not in this world that when I met her mother, my wife, uh, 26 year or so years ago, we actually had to go out and talk to each other so that we could figure out who, who we were, right? I couldn't Google her. She couldn't Google me. That didn't exist. 
Um, now you would never think about going on a job interview or first date or any of those things without Googling the person to find out who they are. And that, that talks to, to your, it's, I was just going to say, and that speaks to your reputation thing. Yeah. That's why like, there's a lot of people, um, under the age of 40 that are looking to run for office that pause for a second and go, Oh, but there's so much of me online. And then they go, but there's a bunch about everybody online. So that doesn't necessarily mean that's a, you know, right. plus that's or right. And there, there is, I'm not, I don't have a feeling one way or the other yet, but there is a camp that says when everything is public, then nothing is really an issue. But yeah. It's that, it's that, that transparency, you know, I mean, I work in PR. I would, I would advise anybody who's running a, a political campaign you should probably just come out That's with right. anything because it's That's going right. to come out. And if you can get ahead of something, cool. But I think we've, you know, and this is going off on a tangent, but it's interesting that if you take the offense, uh, knowing that there, all this information is out there, if you take the offense and you establish an expectation, good, bad, or indifferent, if you, if you establish that expectation that this is what people can expect from you and you create the line – then yeah, the the line can be right. wherever you want. And, to. and if you look, that goes the same if for you brands. Look, sure. and, and and that that's a great segue. If you look at when people get in trouble, it's rarely the act. It's it's uh, the cover always the, worst the denial, time, right? and and so yeah, you know, segueing back to brands, brands are going to do something wrong. Every brand makes a mistake because they're people and they're going to forget to mail you something or they're going to forget to process something or they're going to ring something up wrong or they're going to bring you the wrong, you know, appetizer, whatever. Brands are – Or they're just – Or they're just <laughs> – There's occasional brands that maybe work harder <laughs> at this than others. Well, it, but no, but I mean – and I make that joke, but I mean anytime you're a big brand with a lot of consumer touch points, then it's just – it's like if you're running an up-tempo offense in basketball, you're going to score a lot of points and you're going That's to right. give up a lot of points. So, but the challenge is what, what brands fail at is the recovery, right? You go to a, a restaurant that you love to go to and you have a bad meal and they treat you well about it, it doesn't bother you at all. Now, they can't do it every time you go there, but your waiter is off one day or you have whatever, the food is a little overcooked, whatever it is, you'll you'll roll with it, assuming that they roll with it. Right. If if you get your food and you go, I I think I wanted this, you know, medium well and this looks and they argue with you, then they're 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 dying right there. Right. I don't believe, by the way, and I I think we made a big deal out of this as in as especially retailers i don't believe the consumer is always right i think sometimes the consumer is completely wrong and i think it's okay to to be like no you you did order the fish i'm sorry that you thought you were ordering steak but you ordered fish if you want you know i'll trade you um but i think where brands create most of their own problem is that they don't handle the mistake well. So, you know, you mentioned Comcast. I was in Europe. I think it was the Poland trip. I came back and for some unknown reason, logging back into my Comcast Wi-Fi network at home, I could not get into any Google things. 
I couldn't get into my Gmail. I couldn't go to. I couldn't just go to Google. I couldn't get into anything that YouTube, nothing related to Google. You came back and you were on a Google Yes, apparently. Um, and I made a joke on Twitter about whether or not Comcast was buying Yahoo, and that's why they were blocking all the Google sites. <laughs> and I got a pretty quick response back from, from Comcast saying, what up? And I said, well, here's what's going on. And they probably over about two and a half hours worked with me to fix this problem. And, and eventually we got it fixed. It's some, some weird DNS setting that got reset in Europe for some reason. I've been now, there. Yeah. had that That's been happening. a two and a half hour phone call, I would have been a cranky ass. I would have been pissed off. I would have been cur- like it just would have been bad. But on Twitter, it right. was fine because I would get a question and I would answer it and they would say, OK, give me I, I'm going to need some time to look into this. And then I could go back to doing whatever I was doing. I'm watching TV. I'm being on email, whatever. Um, there was a problem, but they fixed it fine. You know, there was no. It, and the point is, yeah, the, the experience, right? So it, it, because you didn't have to listen to, like, Michael right. McDowell <laughs> ripoff music. Right. I was okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, At Disney, that's never what you want. Now, and again, I was an hourly theme park employee who sold merchandise. Right? The, our guidelines yeah. for customer service satisfaction was really that I couldn't go into another land. So if I was on Main Street, I couldn't walk into Tomorrowland. I'd have to call somebody in Tomorrowland. Like if, if a guest came to me on Main Street and said, I left my shopping bag in Tomorrowland, I would call somebody in Tomorrowland. I would walk the guest basically to the border. They would be met there by the Tomorrowland person. That person would continue them on. That was really our guideline. Otherwise, we could do anything else we needed to do to make sure the guest had an awesome experience. Well, and you don't have a time machine. Right. So <laughs> That's, true. That's true. That's um, th- true. Like, when you look at this, this is one of my favorite things about the world we live in today as it relates to brands and marketers. What I hear all the time and what I see people writing about, that this is the age of relationships. It's all about relationships. We want relationships with brands. Brands want relationships with us. People like right. dealing with other people. How many all times do you go... Th- Throw That's in right. Agile and you get bingo, David. How many times do you go to a company website and there is no phone number to get help? Well, if there is, right? I just And you just think stop. about it. Like if you meet somebody again, if you're dating before you were engaged, if you were dating and you were out and you were talking to a person and it seemed like it was really going well and at the end of the night you said, hey, I'd love your number. And they said, yeah, I'll take yours. And if I want you, I'll call you you would know pretty conclusively you had no relationship with that person. Right? It's true. So it's very, very when brands are saying, if you're going to say, I want a relationship with you, then you have to live relationships. And you have to be able to deal with me. And this is really hard for brands, but this is you know where there's great tools now. The, the problem is you have to deal with me how I want to be dealt with. You can't be like, David, I know you love to talk to us on the telephone, but we don't really like that. So can you tweet us instead? No, if I like to talk to you on the telephone, that's how I need to deal with you. There are just sometimes I need that real extra hand holding or whatever it is. Um, so, David, David, I'm going to jump in really quick. So uh, on that, I, I, I love the examples you're sharing right now about 
you know, whether it was the Comcast example or anything else, if we're looking, we like making predictions in the think tank. So if we're looking at the, let's look at the Fortune, let's start with the Fortune 500. And we realize this is, this is just a broad, random question. What percentage of the Fortune 500 do you think is focused enough on experience today? Hmm. Somewhere way south of half. Yeah. Way south of half. Um, I think. I, what about? Uh, I'm looking at what about the Fortune 50? Oh, hold on. Sorry. Um, autoplay ads. So, so when I'm looking at the uh, top 10, I see healthcare companies. I, I don't care what you want to tell me in your marketing material. There's not a single healthcare company that actually cares about me. Well, and CVS might uh, join up with Aetna. So that could yeah. be <laughs> that. So I, I saw the funniest thing, which I said to my wife and she looked at me like I no idea what I was talking about. And I was just laughing. Somebody tweeted that CVS was thinking about buying Aetna and just imagine what that receipt will look like. <laughs> like you're going to buy a Red Bull and right. it's 14 pages long? It's amazing. So it looks you like can, an actual like scroll from medieval times. Right. You can imagine a $66 billion transaction is going to be like, you know, you're going to be able to go to Saturn with the paper that they're going to use for this. But when you start to look at companies like that, um, you know, again, long, long time ago, uh, not part of my recent work, working with uh, some people who were trying to figure out new ways to do insurance. And I asked the question about uh, paying claims faster. And, and literally, they laughed at me. You know, dude, we don't want to pay claims faster. Well, then then you're, you're never going to be customer service focused. Like the main thing I want as a customer is I don't have to fight for my money. So, um, so you know, you look at companies like that and and – you know, some are not as bad as others, but there's none of them that I would say in that category are awesome. So for the ones that like, I, I think there's there's some that definitely get it right. There's some that are there's a, a good good section that are right. trying for the ones that haven't even really dipped into it, because, I mean, for some reason in the last 20 years, we we. Somehow, and I don't know if anybody can really point a finger on it, we got to this point where we built bigger stores, especially in retail. We built bigger stores with fluorescent lighting. We just tried to give everybody stuff for less, but then in a race for the bottom, no one wins. So for for the ones who haven't, what is your what's your idea or your quick hit on how do you – immediately get your fortune 500 company into experience if you haven't been doing it so, so the first thing you need to do is really look at every process you have and and tally up what process benefits you hold on uh, yeah uh there, there, there's an experience that's crappy uh yeah. pop, pop up autoplay you know uh auto audio ads. Anyway, so the first thing you do is look at your processes and your procedures and, and you know, do the checklist. What is in favor of the company and what is in favor of my c consumer? Uh, and again, it doesn't, it, it's not that everything has to be in favor of your consumer, right? You're in the business to make money, but you have to start just that simple balance checklist. Huh, if 80% of the things we do benefit the company and not the consumer, then I'm probably not consumer focused. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then you need to start looking at the places where it's really easy to be, 
we all know if you're especially if you're in the experience space or in the customer experience stuff you know that mainly companies are set up that you have to be escalated to the third person on phone to get help because they never want the first person to help you the first person's <laughs> real job is to get you just to hang up in frustration well right that's that's again, if I call up with, but I power through right then. I, I get straight to the fourth person. That you go immediately to, you know, what? just connect me to a supervisor. Let, let's, yeah. I, I don't have time for this. Just escalate me three times. Um, <laughs> we don't empower people because the first thing we say, uh, l again, listen to how companies talk. Companies will say our employees are our most valuable asset. What company doesn't say that? It seems like the yeah. It seems like the standard thing you have to say. It's like, well, of course. It's right. like that Louis C.K. special where he's like, well, of course. Right. Oxygen is the most important thing to breathing. It's it's not pretty much a statement that anybody really thinks is a big deal. But so so they say our employees are our most important asset. That's what they're saying publicly to their employees. They're going, I think you're such a moron that you cannot make a single decision unless 25 people approve it. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, it's, and I am shocked. The reason we started doing these experience walkabouts uh, a couple of years back in New York was the number of people who were especially retail people who actually never go shopping or, the CEO would go, well, I, you know, visit stores all the time and everything looks great. Well, that's because, first of all, the store is called, you know, three days in advance. You show up with an entourage. It's not like you're showing up, you know, as a secret shopper. Um, right. You haven't joined <laughs> Undercover Boss. Yeah. Everybody knows you're coming. Everything's on the top of the line, you know, but you've never gone. You've never called up to return something. Like, see what that process is like. Oh, yeah. Right? So the second thing I say is you have to have your own experience. And you have to have your own experience like you're a real customer. Uh, yeah, you'll understand it better that way. You'll understand all the potential pitfalls. That's right. Um, uh, and, and, and again, as we were talking about with the whole reputation, it, it's kind of okay to say, ooh, wow. Yeah, we really messed that up. I'm, I'm, that, that's a mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, because people, yeah, like like every one of the airlines, right? Like, but but you know the problem is, it's uh again, I am Catholic, so sometimes I bring the you know, it, yes, God has infinite forgiveness for f sins, but at some point He's going to say, dude, you ask for forgiveness on this sin every twenty minutes, stop doing it, right? So. Yeah. When when you hear we love to fly and it shows, nah, it really doesn't show that much. <laughs> but that's because we we have four air and, and that's the interesting thing because we we talk so much and I'll, I'll try and put this in a in a nice happy bow but we try and talk so much about experience but I think experience honestly does matter a little bit more in in industries where you're you have a lot of competitors and it's it's very difficult in the airline business you have a few competitors. Uh, it's basically whatever one's the cheapest and whatever one, you know, just got booked for right. you. So there's a, there's there's not as much demand, and because they're they're somewhat regionally based. So if you live by a Delta hub, you know, right. going to be hard not to fly United, American Southwest, and we might 
we might rank them in our head, but I mean, I just got booked for travel today and I went with, oh yeah, that one seems to be at the right time. And then I, then right. I look back on it and go, oh, it's that right. airline. And, and you know what? I, in, in thinking about, you know, when we were getting prepped for this and my own thinking, right? So there's a whole set of responsibilities that the, the, the brand has, right? The airline, the retailer, whatever it is. There's an equal set of responsibilities that we have as consumers, um, one right. is that we are legitimate because sometimes you hear people complain and you're just like, really, dude, like you think this is worthy of, uh, burning torches and pitchforks and storming the castle. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, your bag of peanuts was five minutes late, you know, grow up. Um, I, I shop from a company. They're one of my favorite companies, uh, to, uh you know, as a consumer, I have nothing to do with them at all. Um, but a company called Duluth Trading out of Duluth, Minnesota. Oh, I'm right? familiar. Boy, you can send anything back. They're like L.L. Bean. Yeah, I know you've worn the boots for 10 years, but if you're not satisfied with them, of course, we'll take them back. If you're not satisfied in the 11th or 12th year, yeah. Right? yeah we I sold you those boots because they were going to last forever, and, and, and it's still forever. So so they're doing an awesome job at, at being good customer service. My responsibility as a consumer is not to abuse that. It's not to buy shoes every week because I need new shoes to go to this meeting I'm going to and then return them every week and abuse the system. My responsibility as, as a good consumer to make sure they're a great company is to not take advantage, but also to hold their feet to the fire a little bit. When I bought uh, probably four pairs of jeans in the same style in the exact same size from Duluth. Two of them fit me perfectly. The, the two colors did not fit me. And they couldn't explain it. I'm like, but there should be no difference between the black pair and the blue pair. It's the same. It's everything about it is the same. So I could come back to them and say, you got you to gotta figure that out, right? That's my responsibility. Um, part of what happened with us is we all decided in a lot of areas that cheaper was fine and that it really didn't matter anyway. And part of the problem was because you, even when you spent more, you didn't get a better experience. You know, it's not yeah. like you look at airfare and you go, I don't understand how one seat on this flight is $230 and another seat on the same flight is 870 Or we went to mega, mega, you know, electronics, you know, when we got to big ones like right. Best Buy and Circuit City, which dwarfed uh, Radio Shack, which, uh, you know, obviously dwarfed Circuit City, too, is that we, we started not caring about the person that could help us or that experience or that experience-driven stuff that drove retail in the 50s right. and 60s. So, David, let me, let me try and wrap this with a 60-second lightning. Sure. I think we can do it. Okay. Thing that excites you the most in the next year? Uh, where AR and VR is going thing that scares you the most in the next year? Uh, politics. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a whole other talk. I'm sorry. Wait, wait. No, I'll go right back to the brand world. Uh, uh, um, security issues with our data. Well, yeah, that, that would be a, that'd be a tough one too. Um, how long does Twitter last? You know what? I think Twitter is going to be around a long time. Uh, I think they'll they'll go up and down with utility and value, um, but I think people still like to just get those quick little 
snippets of information and, and chat. So I think they'll be around for a while. If Warby Parker makes wearable glasses, do you oh, buy yeah. them? Yeah, I think that's that's what we're waiting for. And that is a 30, well, that's a 60-second awesome. lightning round. David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're definitely going to have you back. Always my pleasure. And like I said, you know, if we want to do this, uh, hit the streets of a city and do a live while we're walking, talking, uh, that, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I just like yeah. people <laughs> in general. So that sounds like a great idea. So stay tuned on that one. And, um, you know, it's a good conversation when you get to 50 minutes and you didn't no, even that's know great. it was more than that's half That's great. I'm glad this is working. Thank you guys. Thanks, David.